Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series, and I'm your host, Maddie Gobo. I'm the events manager here at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. Uh, We are open still somehow for in-store shopping uh, every day, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. on weekdays and 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. on weekends. Uh, We ask that you wear a mask and social distance and sanitize your hands and all that stuff. Um, We also offer curbside pickup those same hours. If you want to get your books safely, we very much recommend using that service. You can order your books over the phone, 323-660-1175, or on our website, skylightbooks.com. Definitely recommend giving us a call. At this point, it's a little bit late in the season, so you will get your books faster if you call us at the store versus ordering them online. That's a little pro tip for you all, all of you listeners out there. Um, So today I'm delighted to bring on two authors who are going to be in conversation about their new books. Um, Our authors today are Ruth Gilligan and Amber Sparks. Ruth Gilligan is the author of The Butcher's Blessing, which is a new novel out from Tin House. And Amber Sparks is the author of the story collection, And I Do Not Forgive You. Um, I'm going to say just a few words about uh, our lovely guests today. And then um, Ruth's going to start us off with a reading. They're going to have a a lovely conversation. And then Amber is going to close us out with a short story. So you're going to get two readings today for the price of one. All right. So The Butcher's Blessing is set in the gothic wilds of Ireland. It's a haunting and unforgettable thriller brimming with secrecy, tradition, and superstition. We're going to get into some of all of those secret and esoteric things today. Um, Ruth Gilligan is a graduate of Cambridge and Yale and now works as a senior lecturer in creative writing at the University of Birmingham. She contributes regular literary reviews to The Guardian, Los Angeles Review of Books, Irish Independent, and The Times Literary Supplement. Amber Sparks is the author of The Unfinished World, and her fiction and essays have appeared in American Short Fiction, Paris Review, Tin House, Granta, and elsewhere. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband, daughter, and two cats. Her new short story collection, And I Do Not Forgive You, which has a fantastic cover with a big axe on it, you can't miss it, was named an NPR and Washington Post Best Book of the Year. Ruth and Amber, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Thanks for having us, Maddie. Yes, happy to be here. So um, I just wanted to situate us in, in space and time here because we're all on the Zoom call together, but we are very far apart. Uh, Ruth, could you tell our listeners where you're joining from? Uh, yes, I'm joining from my apartment in London, 
Um, it's pitch black outside and it's very cold and I have the heating on and it feels like the winter has only just begun, but may never end. So yeah, that's where I am. <laughs> and Amber, where are you today? I am in um, Washington, D.C. in my apartment, uh, and it is very gray, although not yet dark. Um, it will be in a couple of hours. Uh, and also very cold, so. <laughs> well, since you're on a Los Angeles podcast, let's all think sunny thoughts today. <laughs> you should have worn our sunglasses just to get us in the mood. <laughs> all right, Ruth, well, do you want to start us off with a short reading? Certainly, absolutely. Thanks so much. Um, so yes, I'm going to read um, just a little bit from near the start um, of The Butcher's Blessing, um, which is a novel that centers around a group of eight dudes called The Butchers, um, who travel around the Irish countryside killing cattle, according to a set of folkloric customs. Um, but the novel doesn't actually follow um, the men on their travels. It actually focuses on the women, the wives and the children that they leave behind. So the bit that I'm going to read is from the point of view of Una, who is one of the butcher's daughters, um, and she's saying goodbye to her father as he sets off on his travels. The dawn was barely cracked when the time came for departure. Her father would walk to a crossroads about a mile down the road, where the others would be waiting with the horses and carts. Sometimes her mother, for a mess, suggested the butchers should drive, should invest in a minivan. They say Ireland's getting more modern by the day. Why not keep up with the times? But Una knew better than to laugh at that joke. Nothing about the old ritual was allowed to change. Her mother hovered next to her now on the front step, the pair of them sheathed in their dressing gown furs. The air outside was well below freezing, making white of their goodbye breaths. You're a gorgeous girl. Her father croaked as he leaned down for a kiss. It took all her strength not to beg him to stay. The butcher embraced his wife one last time, then ambled slowly out the gate. He looked so giant as he moved, big enough to be a myth himself. The fields around were raw with silence, the hillsides stony, pocked and sparse. It was a wonder anything would ever grow again. And Una was so distracted, she almost forgot. Love, your shoe. But as soon as her mother spoke, she took her slipper from her foot and flung it hard, watched it arc through the air and then land in the shimmering frost. It was another custom meant to wish him luck on his travels. Her father didn't turn, only removed his hand from the pocket of his overalls and raised it high in acknowledgement. Una stayed out on the doorstep watching, her left foot slowly going numb until she saw the man shape blacken, then shrink, then disappear. Eventually, her white breath faded too, as the moon bowed out and the sun arrived, hurling itself cold and radiant into the morning sky. The following week, it was time to say goodbye to the Christmas holidays too, which meant that Una was back to school and back to the early starts. The world was still black when she set out, though she did notice a set of prints divoted in the dirt. She thought of the fox she sometimes saw in the back garden. Would there be a fresh litter of cubs this year? She considered the question as she buried her hands in her pockets and walked faster, trying to outrun the cold. At school, Una wandered the corridors, yanking down the jumper that kept rising over her midriff. She was growing. She would need a new one soon. 
Though really, it was a waste of money, since the uniform didn't even serve its purpose. She still stood out a mile. The weirdo, the first-year freak, the butcher's daughter. Sometimes it was just funny looks she got, whispers wafting up through the class like a bad smell. Other times, the girls would scream when she brushed against them, claiming that she had cursed them under her breath. Once, the boys had circled around her, pawing at the tarmac with their shoes, their fingers' horns on the side of their heads. Mrs. Donahue had shown up just before they charged. At first, Una had been confused. Hadn't her father always told her how important the butchers were? How integral a role they played in Ireland's history? So if anything, when her parents decided to stop her homeschooling and send her to secondary school, she thought her new classmates would be dying to be her friend, angling for invites to Sunday tea, to taste her family's meat and to hear her family's stories. But when the reality had set in, Una asked her mom why everyone seemed to hate her. And her mom could only garble some excuse about her being special. And special, she said, isn't always easy to understand love. So instead, people just push it away. Thank you, Ruth. What a beautiful Thanks. reading. <laughs> you can really feel the sense of place coming through so strongly um, in that section. And I, I was also thinking about some of the resonances between uh, your work and, and Amber's work, um, starting with this introduction of this sort of outcasted female young woman who's seen as dangerous um, by the society around her. I think, I think there's a lot uh, of connection there with many of Amber's protagonists. Um, so I wanted to start us off just thinking about, um, first of all, how, how do the two of you know each other and how do you come to be on this call together? Well, I mean, I, I can answer that, I think, um, which was just in conversation with people at Tin House when we were like brainstorming, you know, American authors um, that my work was, you know, quote unquote, in conversation with, which is one of those phrases they use. Um, and, you know, Amber's name came up and I was kind of chuffed when it came up because, uh, you know, I love Amber's fiction and it, it was so freaky as well. I, I teach creative writing at a university and this semester I've been teaching a module on intertextuality and we've been looking at fairy tale rewrites. So I had actually just dug up uh, We May Shed These Human Bodies from my shelf so that I could teach from it. And then so in Tin House we're like, we should get Amber Sparks. I was like, yes, we should. Yes. So it was kind of one of those freaky moments where like different parts of your life all um, collide so, yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like maybe your fiction knew each other before you knew each other as people oh yeah big time yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> as soon as, uh, I, as, soon as um, Tin House you know approached me about I was I, I actually had I had heard of um, Ruth's book and I had, hadn't read it yet but um, uh, I was so excited because I looked it up and I was like oh my god yes of course this is this is like perfect <laughs> So yeah, that was definitely, um, I, I feel like there, and then of course, having read the book, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, there's, there's a lot to talk about here. So very excited. Definitely. definitely. Well, hopefully we'll, we'll get to unpack uh, some more of the things that you thought when you, when you read the book. Um, Ruth, this is your debut, correct? Actually not correct, but oh. you know, that's okay. Um, yeah, it's so it's actually it's number two in America. Um, and then I published some other books in Ireland um, many, many years ago when I was much younger. So 
Um, so yeah. Okay. So so my question is then about you know how did this book come to find its home at Tin House, um, and how do you feel about it being being out in the world during this very strange time? Yeah. Well, I mean, the strange time thing is definitely. Um, it's weird, but also I should say, like, it came out in the UK and Ireland back in March, um, which in many ways was way weirder just because, like, I was supposed to have a book launch on the 26th of March. And, like, at the start of March, the world was still figuring out, like, what the hell was going on. And so we, like, were like, oh, yeah, the book launch is still going to go ahead. And then a week later, it was like, oh, the book launch might only be able to have 50 people. And then the week later, it was like, oh, the book launch is going to have 10 people. And then eventually it was like, there's no book launch. So we, like, literally went on the, like, slow decline. And, you know, all these things that we had lined up, like bookshop visits and talks and all this kind of stuff just you know, one after the other was cancelled, cancelled, and then, and then gone. So actually, fast forward, like, nearly nine months now, and it's coming out in America. Like, yes, it's weird to publish a book in a pandemic. But also, this time we knew, <laughs> like, we knew what we were dealing with. So like, all the plans we made were already virtual. And, and frankly, like, there are some advantages for, you know, especially because I'm based in the UK. So like, I was, you know, doing stuff virtually works better for me because I don't have to, you know, somehow get a plane fare and fly over just so I can say hello to people face to face. So there are like some, I'm all about the silver linings at the moment because there aren't very many this year. So that is one of the few um, silver linings. So yeah, it's been, it's been weird, but March was way weirder because it was right at that like tipping point. And it was almost like, it was funny, like some authors who were even due to be published even a couple of weeks or a month after me ended up getting pushed back um, like either a few months or like I know some, I've got friends who've been pushed back like a whole year because um, it, it was still early enough that they could do that. But the thing is the, the butchers, um, I'm sorry, it's called the butchers in the UK, but the butchers blessing in the US, which we might talk about, I don't know. Um, but the butchers, like it was already printed, it was in the bookshops, it was like ready to go. Um, so like it was happening, whether we, you know, wanted it to at that point or not. So yeah, that was, March was, March was stressful. <laughs> so this is like, yeah, well, we're kind of like used to this weirdness now. So yeah. 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 Yeah, it's been, it's been really interesting because, um, so actually, yeah, my book um, came out at the end of, February. Um, and so, you know, I was lucky that, uh, enough to actually have like, oh, I, I had like, it was really weird because I had like a week of launch um, in, in New York and in DC. Um, and like, so my husband and my daughter were actually with me and we, you know, went to New York and Philly and Boston and, and, and did readings there. And like, as we were traveling, the pandemic was like getting to be like closer. And then it was kind of like, looking dicey and then and and then you know as soon as like literally as soon as we got home it was like it's here no you know everything shut down so um so I was lucky to have that but but um but at the same time yeah I, I totally know because um all the rest of my book tour got canceled um at that point immediately and and at first it was um yeah it was like hard and weird and sucky um although much worse for people who had books that came out in like you know I felt like April or late or May, you know, um, but but also um, uh, at the same time, it, there were there were some like interesting silver linings because I feel like I've done 
including this event, right? Where I've, I feel like I've done so many more events than I probably would have done otherwise, um, including in all these places where I like, you know, like LA, where I can't afford to actually like usually add to my, um, to my travels for books. So, so in a way, yeah, it's, and, and to be able to connect with, with an author like you in, in London um, is, is actually really cool. So, you know, the, like you said, a few several linings, but, um, <laughs> but we cling, we cling to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this year has really been a crash course in adaptability. Um, and, and I know, you, yeah, you two have, have been really game for <laughs> some strange new formats. So thank you for, for joining us here on this, this podcast, which we didn't really have before. Um, so I'm really interested to hear the two of you talk about each other's work. So I'm going to kind of take a step back and, uh, and let you guys get into it. Um, but if you need me, I'll be listening and, uh, and I'll come back at the end for a little outro, but take it away, please. Um, well, I, I, actually, I guess I can start with, cause I have, I have a sort of a question. Um, you know, speaking of the pandemic, <laughs> sorry, but um, but I, I was curious, you know, given sort of the, the subject matter of your book and sort of the, the mad cow disease that, that runs through the book, um, uh, you know, did that feel like weird or weirdly relevant to, to be, you know, publishing and talking about that right now specifically or? Yeah, it's really funny. It's like, so in being completely honest, like when I was writing the book and when I was working on the book, like I should say for listeners that the book is set along the border counties in Ireland. So along the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, and there's a lot of stuff about that being kind of a weird liminal in-between space. And there's some like literally like smuggling over the border of both cattle and meat because yeah there's a lot there's a lot of cows in this book um but basically when I was working on the book and when I would tell people that I was working about they were like oh that's very topical because like you have to remember like I'm an Irish person who lives in the UK um and when I was working on this book all that anyone could talk about was Brexit so it was just like Brexit 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 and the Northern Irish border was like the center of all the discussions and all the negotiations and you know literally stuff like trying to get goods and people and animals over the border what are we going to do about that that was like all people could talk about so when I was like oh yeah I'm writing a novel that's set you know in that near the border blah, blah, they're like, oh, that's so topical so in a way I kind of prepped myself for when the book did eventually come out that like that would be the way that the book was deemed kind of zeitgeisty or of the moment or whatever and then as you said it like it came out and yeah it's a book in which you know it's set in 1996 which is when the the mad cow um disease stuff was going on and obviously then it comes out in the middle of a pandemic so suddenly it was like this huge pivot to like oh your book is still topical but for like a completely different reason um <laughs> which was more just like i don't know freaky than anything else i guess you know at this point people then were like well what you know what wisdom do you have from writing this book and researching that time to offer us in this moment of pandemic and i'm like i've got nothing i am absolutely not i am completely baffled by 2020 in the same way that everyone else is so um i mean there are definitely like some interesting parallels like the book definitely looks at the way that you know with mad cow you know the way it was depicted in the media and the way that like it gets politicized and also the the real tension between how it gets 
depicted in the British media as opposed to the Irish media and the tensions there. And like that is definitely something that I've noticed, um, you know, during during COVID is 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 all of those things. Um, so yeah, there's definitely like points of connection but like in truth um as i said definitely no like learning points except like pandemics are bad which i think we've all kind of figured out <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> for sure um i was i was interested in you know um i know many mentioned the the your your young protagonist um una and um and and sort of I, I write a lot as well about um, about sort of young girls on this on the cusp uh, of of adulthood and like specifically I think one thing that I found really fascinating um, reading this book was um, her you know sort of love and embrace of this very sort of wild ancient tradition um, and and sort of the animal aspects of it um, it it's kind of you know she's on the one hand this you know modern girl living in this modern society and you know playing video games and things but then also like has this very um this attraction to, to this like a very animal quality um literally i guess and uh and so i'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about that because i that's that's something that i've i've written a lot about in books too and i think and, and speaking of fairy tales i think that that is in so many fairy tales, right? The the young girl who, you know, chooses to turn into an animal or or become, you know, transforms into an animal or is transformed into an animal by, you know, a god or something like that. So um in, in mythology. So Yeah, I think it, like it is and I think it's so important that um as you say, Una is on the on the cusp. And you know, as you said, like so many myths and fairy tales is all about they're all about metamorphosis and changing and that and you know she kind of you know she gets her period for the first time during the book so it is like literally that moment of transition from kind of youth to adulthood um and yeah i guess you know because she you know she lives in the countryside and there are she's surrounded by animals like that kind of primal connection is there and yet like that very much is a world it's super gendered like it's a man's world and that you know the kind of farming and the cattle industry and that whole aspect of irish life is like so male dominated and the women are supposed to be like inside doing the laundry doing the cooking whatever um so i think she kind of on the one hand is like becoming aware of her womanhood she's like starting to get boobs and she's starting to kind of realize that she looks different to the boys in her class but at the same time she's kind of baffled by the idea that like therefore her life has to take one path as opposed to the other and she's kind of like wait what um and i kind of love that and how she finds ways to work around that um and just be like no i don't think i'm okay with that or or just can't quite comprehend that her whole path would be dictated just because like her chest is starting to like flesh out because she wants you know she adores her father she wants to follow his path she wants to be a butcher as well so then when people turn around and say no no that is not that is not a route for you um she doesn't like it <laughs> so she's gonna yeah she's gonna do something about it um, but yeah and I mean I'm so interested because I think, you know, what you were saying about in your books and, and the animal and the transformations and stuff, you know, when I was writing The Butcher's Blessing, you know, I, I wrangled for a long time about like what it was. Um, and obviously there is, 
myth and folklore and ancient Irish traditions braided in there. But like, and for a while I was like, wait, am I writing magical realism? Am I writing like something mythical? But like, actually the book is basically a realist novel. Like it is nothing, nothing magic, nothing weird actually happens. And, you know, in many ways, as I said, it's set in 1996 and I like did a lot of research and plotted out all the main events and even the main news stories and even the main like pop culture references that happened that year and use that as the template for the events of the book. So like, it's really grounded in fact in, in that year. Um, Whereas you have the freedom, I suppose, to like, you know, if you want to make someone turn into an animal, like you just do it. And is that like, has, has that always been, are you just like, I want to write into that space where I have the freedom to make those things happen. Is that like a conscious thing or does it just not cross your mind to not let those things happen? <laughs> yeah, I guess it depends. Um, you know, because I, because I've got, I do both, right? Like I have stories that are more, more realistic or, and, and then obviously that are ones that deep more into the speculative. And, you know, I think it, it's, it, well, it's a couple things. I think, you know, it's when you're playing with short stories, um, you know, it's always, I think a, there's always a little more freedom there in terms of what you can do and how far you can go because it's a short story. It's, you don't, you know, you don't have to carry it through an entire novel. Um, and so, um, it's actually something I'm, I'm, I'm kind of dealing with right now because I'm, I am writing a novel and actually one of the central questions that I'm having to ask myself is, is magical stuff actually happening in this novel or not? Um, it's interesting. It's I'm actually wrestling with that. Like, do I, love I that you don't that? know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know yet. Um, and it's weird because I'm like halfway through the novel and I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is good. This is going to be real or not. Um, I generally tend to find though that with longer form stuff, um, I don't have as much that's sort of happening. Um, that's overtly uh, magical, I guess. And I'm not exactly sure why that is. Like I have uh, in the unfinished world, there's a novella at the end of it. Um, and that's that's probably the longest thing I've ever written. It actually started out as a novel. Um, and, you know, when it was, and, and at one time there was like all this, like, you know, there were like blood eagle sacrifices and like, you know, dragons and like all kinds of like very overt, like gods and, and things in it. And then, um, as it, you know, as I edited it and, uh, and turned it into a novella, it kind of, um, all the sort of magical stuff faded into the background and it, and it's, it's there. It's, it, 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 I mean, a lot like your novel, right? Where there's like the suggestion of something wild, something to these myths, um, and, and legends, but it's, you know, there's nothing like specifically that you can point to and say that is magic. Um. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting choice and I'm not, you know, I, I like both um, and I like reading both actually um, a lot too. Um, so it, it, it just kind of depends, I guess, on, on the work and what I feel like it requires, you know. Um, yeah, that's really, yeah. yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. And, and where it's set too, um, <laughs> and, and when and how and how specific, you know, um, is, is a big part of it too, obviously. Um, yeah, it's it's actually interesting because you know when I, I, I don't know that I've ever written anything that wasn't sort of that didn't at least have some 
suggestion of something else happening, something, some other worldliness. Um, and, uh, and, and it's funny because I think about, um, you know, how sort of against a lot of American writing that actually is. <laughs> and, and I was thinking, of, I was thinking about this the other day because I was actually talking to somebody and my, I have an aunt that is Scottish. And, um, and she, one of the first uh, gifts that I ever got, uh, that, like books that I ever got as a gift, I was like four years old. And my aunt gave me this um, collection of Angela Carter fairy tales. Uh, but it, it's like, it's like, it was like for children. She like wrote them for children, which, which, you know, I, and I discovered this like just recently when I pulled it out and looked at it and I was like, oh my God, that's Angela Carter. Uh, and, and it's illustrated really beautifully and, and bizarrely. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, there's like this, that, so that side of my family always actually was sort of feeding me this, like, you know, I, the, this diet to the study diet of um of just sort of magic um and and it was it's really interesting because then that sort of i have this other side of my family that's very like swedish and very like you know farmerly and like you know protestant and non-imaginative and sort of seeing those two things um come together in a weird way i think forms sort of the ethos of the magic not magic in the stories if that makes any sense yeah it does i'm like why what a cool aunt like like, <laughs> all the things to give a four-year-old like that is a great present well done I mean and obviously like and again you know I was saying that like this is I've been teaching this stuff this semester and obviously when we came on to fairy tale week we started with Angela Carter and everyone just like minds were blown and everyone just couldn't get over it and I mean is she like for you is she kind of like the you know, the canonical angry feminist fairy tale reteller or like, do we think like things have moved on since her? I mean, I just like, you know, she's remained such a touch point, but like, A, it's been a while now and B, there have been loads of other examples of kind of contemporary women reworking fairy tales to have kind of feminist agendas or whatever. So um, I suppose yeah, I'm also just looking for tips, but you know, I'm keen to be like, <laughs> you know, if she still is the touchstone or whether there are other writers you think that are um, adding or building on that. Yeah, I, I mean, it's kind of, yeah, I mean, definitely um, Angela Carter is still a huge influence and, and has, you know, been ever since I was in college and first discovered her, you know, well, <laughs> first, you know, other than when I was four um, and, and was like, oh my gosh, yes, she's like turned the tables and this is, you know, revolutionary stuff. Um, and, and I love that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's definitely a lot of other, um, people doing really interesting things too with fairy tales. You know, I think about like Carmen Maria Machado and, um, you know, some of the other women that are writing these really, um, Kelly Link, um, sort of appending fairy tales in, in really interesting ways. And it's, not to say that Angela Carter isn't still a touch point or even the touch point, but, but, in, in so many ways, those, I think there's even more complex stuff going on now in a lot of the interpretations that I see, um, you know, where people are uh, really, it's, it's not quite so overt. It's, it's much more, um, I don't want to say subtle, because that makes Angela Carter sound like she's not great, which <laughs> she is, but, <laughs> but there's, there's just a lot going on and people are wrestling with a lot of interesting things, um, which is really cool um, to me. I, I think there's like a whole, 
it's almost like there's a whole generation of people that that for the first time I think really feel free to play with um, fairy tale and mythology and like science fiction and fantasy and all these other elements in a way that I think uh, people kind of thought for a long time was like not serious literature, you know? Um, I don't know if you see that like, like at all with your students or with, with, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess what I am always stuck, like it's, it's always the female students that really connect with it, right? Like there is still like, I think there is a, and it's funny, like reading like fairy tale, like theory, I know that's this sound really boring or whatever but that like traditionally that when fairy tales were thought of as stories for like women and children or whatever and now it seems to be like I'm trying to rack my brains to think of like male examples I'm sure there are plenty but like off the top of my head and I mean there's obvious reasons for that and kind of um as I said in terms of kind of feminist agendas or even pushing beyond kind of gender boundaries or whatever like fairy tales lend themselves so much to that but it is amazing that even within the classroom that like that is the week that always sparks with the with the female students and they're like okay now now I'm interested in this module um so yeah it definitely is um it is super interesting um and I wanted to ask you as well because one thing that I um basically one thing I get asked all the time all the bloody time with this book <laughs> is whether the butchers are real people are obsessed with knowing whether the myth of the butchers is real yeah. um and like it's so interesting with your stories I feel like some of them I'm able to go oh that's a retelling of Peter Pan or that's like riffing on you know the Sabine women or whatever but like yeah. then some of them are like fairy tale that either I've never heard of or I think you've probably made up and like they're you know they're fairy tale ish and and yeah. that's fine that's like I you know I don't care but it's so interesting to me how much people and like readers who when they ask me the question like are the butchers real and I kind of reply by saying like well define real like are folk tales real and they're like don't be obtuse um but they really feel like super strongly about like whether or not this is a pre-existing folk tale or whether I've made it up um and yeah I just really wanted to kind of pick your brains about that and whether you've found something similar and whether you think it matters or yeah yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's, it's, and it's funny, right? Because I, I, I think about that a lot um, because, you know, fairy tales are so old, right? And they're the, you know, that there's that the study that came out like not that long ago that showed that they're even much, much more old than, than, duh, than we thought that they were. And that all these men in the 1700s, you know, actually like stole them from, you know, women who'd been telling these same stories since like, you know, the dawn of humanity basically. And, um, and so like, they're just in, in so many ways, they're just, um, like foundational stories or foundational myths. So it's like, in a way, it's like very hard not to, you know, be riffing on some fairy tale or fable or folk tale because so much of, of, you know, all of our story conventions, you know, come out of, out of those. I mean, it's, it's funny, like when I, I was, I went to my, my daughter's five and, um, I went and was like a guest in her, you know, kindergarten class um, and talked to them about what, you know, being a writer. And I, and I talked to them about, um, I taught them about like how to write a fairy tale or how to, and, 
you know, we talked about like the, you know, you meet three people and you do three tasks and, you know, then, and, and all sort of the conventional rules of fairy tales. And it was funny because um, they just instinctively get that. It's like, it's so built into you, even by the time that you're five years old, that this is like the way that a story works, that you're going to do a certain number of tasks and meet these people. And there's a, it's, it's, um, you know, it sort of rivals the like traditional, you know, literary, um, you know, pl device plotline. Um, and, uh, and so, um, you know, I think that I always think it's like, this is right. This sounds like me totally hedging, but, but I always feel like when people ask me that same question, right. I'm like, who cares? Like, of course, you know, the, all of our stories come from like some basic myth or, or, or whatever. But, um, but I do, I do think it's interesting because I will tend to pick some of the stories that I do want to retell. Um, like Donkey Skin, for example, in the new book, um, A Place for uh, Hidden Things um, or Hiding Precious Things is actually based on the donkey skin myth and, um, or uh, fairy tale. And it's not one that a lot of people are familiar with. So people will be like, what, like, what, <laughs> what's wrong with you? <laughs> Like, why did you come up with this story about a, a father who wants to sleep with his own daughter? That's creepy as hell. Like, and it's like, actually, that's like based on a, you know, it's, that is totally 100% a real fairy tale. I'm just retelling it. Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> and there's like a French movie that's like from ostensibly for kids from the 50s that's about donkey skin, which with Catherine Deneuve in it, which is amazing. Um, it's actually well worth seeing. It's totally crazy. It's amazing. Um, but yeah, so I always feel like it, it to me, I, I agree with you. I'm like, I don't, who cares? Like it doesn't like half of everything that we, we write is plucked from somewhere or from some tradition anyway. And then the other half comes out of our weird brain. And so, you know, <laughs> it doesn't matter to me, but yeah, people do get really, they do get really weird about it. Um, you know, I, and, and they get weird about, you know, whether or not things are just true, right? Also, like whether or not things really happened. So, which is, is especially weird when you write like speculative or like, um, you know, <laughs> obviously not true fiction. Cause it's like, I was about to say, surely you don't get asked that, do you? do you? Oh, I do. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, not, not necessarily like people won't be like, oh, did, you know, she really turned into a witch or whatever, but, but they'll be like, oh, you know, was that historical event and that story really true? Or did the, you know, was that based, or is this story based on your own life? I've gotten that a lot. And it's like, it's a lady in space. Like, what do you, <laughs> like, no, <laughs> obviously not. Um, it's such an interesting impulse or like instinct to like want to know that. And like what, I'm, I'm so interested as to what that, proves or reveals like if you said yes would they be like oh great or would they be like oh that's disappointing I thought you I thought your imagination you know what I mean like I can't decide which people would prefer like I don't know yeah it's interesting I, I don't know either it's pretty funny but I've had some pretty I've had some pretty um hostile um responses to when I do confess that the butchers, i.e. this group of eight men that wander Ireland killing cows in this special way, yeah. are indeed something that I made up. Um, and like, they fit, you know, the book is braided through with loads of Irish folklore and superstition. Um, and like, I, when I was doing my research, I found there are lo loads and loads of weird rituals and superstitions around cows. Um, 
So I kind of smushed them all together to make the butchers. So they're like, yeah. they're less an invention than like an amalgamation. Um, but you know, they are, yeah, I did, I did make them. Up. Um, <laughs> but people, people get really angry um, and they feel like I've like tricked them somehow um, or that there's something like disingenuous about it. Um, and that, uh, yeah, and like, but even, it's so funny, like even my editor didn't realize that it was like really late in the editorial process. My British editor turned around to me and we were like trying to figure out this one particular plot hole. And he was like, oh Ruth, like we just can't get this thing with Una to work. What are we gonna do, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, we could just change that one aspect of the butchers of, of, the, of the ritual. Hmm. And he was like, well, Ruth, you can't do that. And I suddenly realized, I was like, James, you do know that I've made it up. And he like looked at me and like, yeah, he was just flabbergasted. I mean, I should say like, he's British and he obviously just assumed it was like an Irish thing that he'd never heard of. Um, which again, I don't see, like loads of people are like not assuming that they would have heard of the butchers, but they still want to know that like, it's real. Um, although again, how are folktales real, but whatever. Um, but yeah, people, so, so yeah, loads of people don't know and they get really quite angry at this idea that I've made something up, even though like, our job as novelists is to make stuff up. Um, <laughs> so I find it like, I just think it's a really interesting, and especially when you're occupying in that space of fairy tale and fable and folklore and whatever, that that still counts for something. Yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting. Do you, do you, um, so are, are, are Irish people in particular offended? Like, do, are, are they like offended that you've like made up this like you know part of their history or whatever or I don't know I don't think so I think I think also even like I had this conversation a while ago um and loads of my Irish friends were there and they were also like sorry what it's not real like everyone just like and I don't know maybe like maybe Amber it's just a credit to our storytelling that everyone just thinks that everything that comes out of our mouth is indeed um a fact um but yeah so now I just think I think in general it's uh, this idea that somehow I guess because there is, you know, as you mentioned, like such a space of retellings, you know, there's something in the air at the moment, right? Over the last, yeah. the last kind of five years or something, there've been so many great, whether it's fairy tale rewritings or myth, classical myth retellings or whatever, like that seems to be very much in the air. But I think yeah. the default mode is that, you know, it is a retelling rather than an invention. Um, so I think people just, that's their assumption. So then when that gets skewed, they're a bit like thrown. That's so, it's interesting too, cause it makes me think about, um, you know, I was thinking about a, a while ago, I was, I got really interested in American, um, myths or American folk tales, um, you know, like Paul Bunyan and, and, um, you know, Johnny Appleseed and all these stories, which actually, of course, Johnny Appleseed is like the one that's true, which I did not know until <laughs> I found that out very recently, actually. He was a real person. Um, yeah. But but most of the, yeah, right, very, my friend is actually, my friend Matt Bell actually has a book coming out that sort of um, loosely plays with that myth, and I found out it's real, and I was like, Oh my God. Um, but, but the most of the folk tales are not only, I mean, obviously not real, but you know, Pecos bill or whatever, but, but they're actually, a lot of them were, um, uh, are not that old that, and they were made up by American advertising companies or, or American ad, like American advertisers for different products. Um, like I guess Paul Bunyan, uh, was like an advertising thing, uh, for the logging industry. And, um, uh, there, there's another one, uh, 
uh, John, what's his name? Joe Magarak, who's like a, the guy of, made of steel, was apparently an invention of like the steel industry. So <laughs> or something. So I can't remember. I'm probably getting my facts wrong here. But they were definitely like made up and made up like to be, you know, folk tales, um, to have this like folksy sense of authenticity and have people think that they were these very old stories. But in fact, they're not. So it's it, it's sort of an interesting thought too. That is so interesting and also just like super depressing that like folktales equals capitalism. Yay! <laughs> totally, totally. Oh, did I freeze or did you freeze? I think I might have froze for a second. Someone froze, but we're back. Oh, okay. I think I'm back. <laughs> cool. Um. Yes, that's amazing. Um, tell me more about you're writing a novel now. Is that scary? <laughs> it's terrifying. Having, I hate it. Having I written hate the small it. things. Oh no, don't, don't say that. Um, <laughs> well, well, I guess I'm trying to think of a better way to put, well, why are you doing it? Are you like, bear in mind, you know, your, your fiction is so, your short fiction is so great. Did you just decide you're going to take the plunge and, and give it a go? Or like, yeah, I want to yeah, hear about which. Just total stubbornness, I think, um, you know, it, at some point, uh, you know, I'll, I mean, there was also this like annoying, you know, of course, idea that, um, you know, is still very prevalent in the publishing industry that like, you know, you have to write a novel, right? Like you can write your short story collections and that's all very fine and good, but eventually you must write your novel. Um, but, you know, I also, you know, don't necessarily believe that. Um, and, and so, um, it's funny also, sorry to jump in, but that's also like, that's always the kind of what you get told in like the UK and Ireland, but America's always held up as like the place where the short story is an accepted form of, ah. and, you, know, not, you don't <laughs> have to do the like sign the two book deal, which like we'll publish your stories if you give us a novel, like we're all, yeah, you know, yeah. the myth okay. is that in America, that's not, that's not true, but is that, is it true? That, yeah, it's true. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Yeah, no, I don't think it's different here at all. Um, I mean, I think, you know, there are, I, I feel like I, I noticed that novellas are less, like there's almost no novellas in the United States. That's like, it's just like such a rare form. And I've noticed like when I've traveled like in Europe and stuff that, that um, there are just a lot more, uh, a lot more novellas published and people seem to read those a lot more. So, you know, but I think, um, but yeah, generally speaking, I mean, it, it's changing, right? I, I do see that short stories, um, the short story form is kind of becoming a little bit more accepted and more people are reading it and more people are publishing it. And, um, you know, it's seen as a little more commercially viable, but but I don't think a lot. <laughs> um, so, but but I'm actually not, I mean, actually that irritates me. So, so I've kind of pushed back against that. Um, but, you know, at some point I was, I, it almost got to this point where I was like, you know, I just, I just want to see if I can do it. Now I'm just, <laughs> now I'm just annoyed and I want to just like see if I can. Um, and, uh, and I've written a couple novels that, you know, didn't work out. So I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try this again. Um, and, and I totally hate it, but uh, now I'm just in this, now I'm just so stubborn that I'm like, I will finish this. I don't even care. <laughs> it's terrible. And do you like, do you allow yourself to like write little bits of short fiction just on the side to like keep you, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's actually how I've written the last two short story collections. Is, is oh, my you've been wild. Oh my God. 
Dance, I know it sounds so ridiculous, but yeah, yeah, because I'm like, oh god, I'm so bored. I have to, I have to do something else now. Um, uh, but you know, and that's I'm sure will happen again here. But but um, I am doing something a little different this time, where I'm letting myself sort of, uh, you know, write write it without like quite without any structure, without any sort of like purpose or intent. Um, and then, you know, at the end, I'll sort of gather up everything I have and, and, tr and then try to make it into a novel from that point on. But, um, I'm, I'm not trying so hard to like plot it out and, you know, sort of be rigid about it. So we'll see how that goes. I don't know. How do you write a novel? <laughs> you tell me. It's so interesting. So I literally, I, um, did an event just earlier today with um with Avni Doshi, who was shortlisted for the Booker Prize this year for for Burnt Sugar, and she was talking about how I think she wrote like eight drafts of that book or something, which is just oh a huge commitment. Um, oh. but I was kind of like asking her like what finally clicked, and she was like exactly what you said. She said she was a really dogged planner to begin with, and then actually she just gave herself permission to like kind of go with the flow and follow the character's voice, and and that was the thing that kind of unlocked and, and finally landed her in the um in the final draft that then got published and was shortest for the Booker Prize and is amazing. So um but yeah listening to her and then you in one day I'm just like oh God I'm doing it wrong. I am like an avid, avid plotter. Like I that is just how I work also because yeah, I seem to for you. well yeah I mean I also you know this book and and the previous book as well like had multiple multiple narrators like multiple POVs like you know the butcher's blessing has four and a half kind yeah. of um so like there's a lot of different voices there's a lot of different storylines um and as I said because I was committed to like sticking to the you know it's mapped out over the course of 1996 so it's like month for month um I had to like hit certain things and um whether that was like a big news story or the Spice Girls releasing their debut single you know I wanted to I wanted to hit those notes um so yeah I'm a planner but that's that's just in my in my nature like I am that that neurotic organized person and that translates to but I always wonder I always fantasize about a day when I will just like be one of those go with the flow people but I just, I just it goes against like every instinct in my body so yeah what are you working on now I am working on the next one uh which actually i have set myself a challenge i don't know well as i said i don't know if you do this you literally just tell me that you have set yourself a challenge of writing a novel so that is a pretty big challenge um <laughs> yeah. i why do we do this why do we make life hard for ourselves i, I as i said know. my default has always been to write novels with multiple characters um because i love i love reading books like that like the hub you know the move around and have different voices and yeah. often have, you know you get two perspectives on the same situation and and I love that and also I find that easier because I think if you stick with a character for some for the interesting stuff as soon as things get dull you can be like okay see you later I'm gonna pop over into this character's yeah. mind instead so for me it's like cheating because you just always write the juicy good bits with each character so anyway I've set myself a challenge of writing a whole novel with only one protagonist this is like the task I have set myself and it is 
so hard. So I'm cheating. I'm fully cheating. Um, so rather than, because the idea of just like starting with the character and then like moving chronologically forward for 80,000 words, I'm just like, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how the reader isn't just going to get so bored of just like plodding along with me. So yeah, I've cheated and it now jumps around um, in time quite dramatically. So it starts when the protagonist is 30 and then it goes back to when she's five and then it jumps to when she's 20 and then it jumps to when she's 15. And so it jumps around in time. So it kind of feels like different characters or different voices in different yeah. locations, but it is still the same. So yeah, it's so funny. I've like set my own challenge and then I'm cheating myself. It's like, I can see it. <laughs> we're so bizarre writers <laughs> self-torture yeah it's really but it's yeah it's it's really different it's all about um it's basically about motherhood and art so oh there are no cows there are no there's no folklore there's no myth it's um yeah it's a very different beast but i think um again another challenge so we'll see we'll see how that goes it's exciting um, all right, so I'm jumping back in, um, and I would love, Amber, if you could play us off with uh, a reading from your collection. Sure. Um, I will read, uh, you won't believe what really happened to the Sabine women. <laughs> it was mentioned earlier, and we've been talking about, you know, animals and women and, um, and girls and, and things, so seems like a good one. After the attack, we pulled ourselves shut like hospital curtains. Snap. They out there, we in here, pain distilled through tiny wires and tubes. Pain concealed and compressed until someone has great need of it, until it becomes a gift. History will tell you we made quick peace with our rapists, bore them children, married them. History will tell you how we launched ourselves into the battle like burning arrows, how we landed between kin and assaulters. History will tell you that we united Rome. History likes to lie about women. What really happened was this. When we saw our men at war, we almost went out like candles. It's easy to shrink yourself down when anger burns through you, hot, fierce, like a grass fire. It sucks the oxygen out. It eats up all but the most essential parts. Heart, lungs, brain, blood, everything else diminishes, shadows itself, clears out disease. To slake after anger is such a relief. To run toward oblivion, a slaking of dark thirst. And Demeter saw us scrambling in her fields like mice and took pity on us, for had she not been assaulted by Poseidon, forced despite all her powers to bear his twins, she knew what it is to carry the weight of so much rage. And she pulled us into her arms up with the soil and the grass, and she scattered us through the skies as stars shimmering and immortal in the night skies. And for thousands of years, when men looked at those skies, our husbands, our sons, our grandsons, and so on for many generations, they saw us and they were filled with remorse and they remembered what it meant to be a woman at the mercy of men. They built us a temple with statues of ivory and gold. And every seven years, the daughters of Rome wove new dresses for us from the finest cloth on earth. Now we are forgotten. We faded in the sky and no men remember us. 
They tell our stories the way they never happened. And though the women can sense that something is wrong, the feeling is too vague for resolution. The halo of lights from the city and the haze from the cars keep us almost hidden from human view. We are growing jaded, sadder. We can only speak in whispers now, but we still remember our power, what our whispers can warn of if we aim them at the right ears. Our choice is coming to a head. Finally unleash our vengeance or forget that we were ever here. We cannot destroy man alone. We lost the ability to do that ages ago. We are so much stardust and only a little earth still anchors us at all. But it is that little bit that keeps us interested, keeps us watching over the women of this world, waiting, hoping for the ones who will say our names. They have only to summon us. They have only to say that they've needed us so. We would swoop down like hawks then, our pain finally put to use, propelling us to the foot of the earth. We would eat evil men like mice. We would rebuild the world in our image, in our glory, in our dazzling beauty and brilliance, and then, only then, would we do the thing they say we did long ago, rid them of their wars, and bring them peace beyond dreaming, beyond the imagining of any living thing. Thank you. Oh my gosh. I want to eat men like mice. <laughs> <laughs> so inspired. Too time for my dinner, so guess what I'm going to have. <laughs> oh, it's been such a blast having you both. Thank you so much for sharing your work and, and having uh, such a fun and factual conversation. I'm going to be mulling over, Amber, your comment about uh, folklore being corporate funded in the U.S. That's going to be haunting me for weeks, I'm sure. <laughs> Mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, before we go, I just wanted to see if there are any last things you wanted to say or mention to our listeners. No? I cannot think of anything. <laughs> oh, get the books. Just get uh, the butcher blessing and get and I do not forgive you. And get it from Skylight Books. Um, and you're you're not gonna regret it. They're both gonna be great. They're gonna be great companions for you out there in the in the cold December world. Yeah. <laughs> all right well um that is it for today ruth and amber thank you again it was a joy and a delight to have you on um and listeners thank you so much for listening we appreciate you we love you we cherish you and uh, we hope that we can do more of these things in person have more of these conversations in person in 2021 fingers crossed for that vaccine to come through <laughs> All right. Well, Ruth and Amber, take care today and um, congratulations again on the books. Okay, thank you. Thanks so much. All right, everybody. Catch you on the flip side. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.